Hello, I'm Andy Stevenson and welcome to a new series of A Winning Mindset brought to you by the International Paralympic Committee and their long-standing and now worldwide Paralympic insurance partner, Allianz. We lived up to our name as our first season won a host of podcast awards and we're delighted and very grateful that you're either coming back to us or finding us for the first time. If you are new, then please do listen to some of those first season interviews with the likes of Johnny Peacock, Tatiana McFadden and Husna Kukendakwe. Our aim is to introduce you to stories with Paralympians that will spark confidence in your everyday life. Stories of challenges, ups and downs, determination and excellence. This season will focus on mental health and how to deal with setbacks. Get to know the true power of having the right team behind you and join us as we prepare you for what's ahead. In this episode, I speak to Australian Paris swimmer turned cyclist Hannah McDougall and her coach Nick Owen. As well as her sporting achievements, Hannah has a PhD in the study of well-being and is perfectly placed to help us all achieve greater feelings of happiness, security and calm. Hi Hannah, it's lovely to speak to you. Thanks for having me, Andy. Good to be here. For people outside of Australia, I think it's worth outlining that you became a paracyclist back in 2010 and went to both track and road world championships. But before that, you were a swimmer and competed at the 2004 and 2008 Paralympics. And the thing that jumped out at me was you dislocated your kneecap a week before the Athens Games. How on earth did you deal with that and and still manage to compete? On the way back from a training session and just heading towards the team bus, walking with my teammates, I discovered this fact of life that unfortunately a carbon fiber leg is stronger than the human kneecap. And so I was essentially going one way, the carbon leg went the other way, hopped out the kneecap, fell to the ground, excruciating agony. I had done it a few times before and I knew that you need to get it back in as soon as you can. And so it's essentially just a process of straightening your leg and popping it back in. But still, there was damage done to tendons and ligaments. And so I had physio sessions and taping and being a Paralympic team managed to uh, borrow slash hijack a wheelchair for a little while there to roll around in. And um, I didn't kick too much for a few days, but it did settle. And yeah, a week later, went on to compete in the Athens Games and um, happily walked away with that bronze medal in the relay. And and you were only a teenager at the time. We're going to be speaking a lot in this podcast with you, Hannah, about well-being, which we'll, we'll come on to in a moment. But as a teenager, going to something as massive as the Paralympics... Did you have people around you who could help you cope with that occasion, both both mentally and physically? There was many beautiful people who helped me to cope. And so that's Athens Games, the Australian Paralympic swim team. 80% of us were under 18. And so the rest of the Australian team nicknamed us the preschoolers uh, because all of these little kids are running around the Paralympic Games having having a blast. So I think there was both that, that youth aspect and that just joyousness of being at the Games were quite helpful to deal with the pressure itself. I was uh, very lucky in that my mum, who's my biggest supporter, didn't cotton wool ball me throughout life. So I did learn how to fall down and then have to pick myself up again. And then we had a really beautiful culture 
because we were so young, it was just like, okay, guys, let's just go in, let's have fun, let's get PBs and let's focus on that. And so that was the the environment that we were operating in. Uh, so we're pretty lucky in that respect. You're well known for your sporting achievements, but away from competition, you've made huge steps in an academic sense as well. When when did you begin your studies into well-being and what, what made you jump into that? This is actually to do with uh, my leg as well, Andy, in the sense that I completed my undergraduate degrees in sports science and sport management, and I did an honours thesis on disability sports sponsorship. And then after that, I was just like, what the hell do I do now? And I decided to take a year off and was hoping to have an epiphany uh, (laughs) on a bike somewhere in Europe and it didn't really come. I had a great time and I've got a lot of good stories from those trips, but I can't say I had any life epiphanies. But I came back home and I was reading the newspaper and it had a competition of tell us in 25 words or less, what is one of your happiest moments in life? And so I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do that. The prize was to attend a wellbeing conference up in Sydney. And so I told the story of receiving my first ever waterproof swimming leg and how that enabled me to jump the waves at Bondi Beach in Sydney, Australia for the first time in my life when I was 12 years old. Because before that, it had always been crutches or piggybacks and uh, not being able to get that leg wet. So I talked about that moment in my life and lo and behold, I won tickets to the conference and was then introduced to this well-being world where I got to hear from just these amazing, amazing people who have helped shape my life for the past 10 years. So I was like, these are my people. This is what I want to learn and grow about because, you know, psych was interesting, but people had already fallen off the cliff. I wanted to help people before they even got to the cliff. It's really nice that you can kind of trace it back to, to that moment, um, you know, on the beach and going into the sea with with your waterproof prosthetic. And this kind of leads me on to to ask you what well-being is because I think when when I was preparing for this interview I think I was guilty of thinking well well-being is essentially happiness but actually it's it's a lot more than just happiness isn't it uh yes I mean we all human beings in a nutshell do want to be happy and I think there's uh that that word happiness means so many different things to so many different people and we can define it in many, many different ways. And it's the same with this well-being concept, which is perhaps a little bit more encompassing than just happiness itself. So, if we look at well-being, there's generally the, the two major theoretical traditions of hedonia and eudaimonia. If we think of hedonia to be with with pleasure and life satisfaction, whereas eudaimonia is more to do with uh, actualization and and growth um, and then your relationship with other people. And we also look to include things like social well-being in there. There's quite a few similarities between all of these these models and they generally include, you know, a focus on relationships, engagement, accomplishment, meaning in life um, and then there's these supporting pillars of, of nutrition and sleep and physical activity. There's so many different 
options and pathways that you can take to improve well-being to find what's going to be most helpful for you. So that's also really exciting. And we've seen it in in Paralympic sports, Olympic sports in the last few months and, and even across other sports as well, that there does seem to be quite a tangible shift now to a place where athletes can be open and honest about what is called their mental health and and say when their performance levels drop below what they were expecting an athlete will now come on and and be honest about that rather than trying to sort of be defensive about it i'm i'm really respecting and encouraged by the vulnerability that athletes have been showing recently because uh it shows that they are human beings who have emotions that they have to deal with uh, and all of the ups and downs that they do go through. And we know that athletes have similar or higher rates of mental illness compared to the general population. And although we we train so hard and we put (laughs) our our lives and our souls into being at that elite level um, and that peak performance, it is pretty rare for everything to kind of come together um, on the day. So I think it's some really good steps forward. And, you, you know, you're an athlete yourself. Athletes lose and actually athletes lose more than they win. So how as an athlete do you protect your well-being even when you've lost? For me personally, and this is going to be a lifelong practice, Andy, in terms of being able to recognize that uh, Hannah is a person and I'm not defined by my performances. So just because I have a bad performance doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. Um, however, it doesn't mean that when I have a, uh, a performance which I view as not being successful, that I am not hurt, I'm not angry, uh, but a- being able to sit with those emotions, so using tools like mindfulness to be able to recognize oh, okay, I'm, I'm feeling extremely angry that I didn't qualify for the Tokyo Paralympics and frustrated and, um, and completely gutted. Uh, and so being able to firstly have the awareness to name them, um, to know that things change continuously, guaranteed in life. There's this grief and loss process that's happening here what for me is going to be be helpful? Is it is it sleep? Is it to spend time with my friends? Is it to to go watch one of my favorite movies? What what's those kind of key ingredients? Is it to be practicing gratitude? Is it to wallow for twenty four hours? So learning those techniques generally it takes time <laughs> to heal from those disappointments, um, as well as okay what am I going to focus on now? I mean, away from sport, just in everyday life, why do you think people tend to neglect their well-being? We can all get sucked into that badge of busyness and the the work and the go, go, go and being connected to our phones and technology 24-7. So I think all of these factors can be highly detrimental to our well-being. I love that there's been this recent kind of conceptualization of uh, time billionaires. So in, so people who have the luxury of time to pursue um, things that maybe are more helpful for their well-being rather than 
working 60 or 80 hours a week. Uh, they are investing that time into learning a new skill. So whether it be painting or pottery or uh, a dance class and, and, and making the time to catch up and cook a dinner with friends or, or, or go out for dinner or um, go out for a walk and putting those phones away. So I think, yeah, we need to learn how to drive technology a lot better rather than let it drive us. Uh, so I, you know, for example, I've turned off notifications on my phone for all of the the social media apps. I wouldn't say I'm I'm perfect in terms of my technology usage, but I think that's been a really just a helpful small change to you know stop me looking at my phone every two seconds. Is well being something that you can always kind of improve yourself, or do you sometimes need help from others? You know, I'm I'm thinking of you, you know, personally yourself. You know, you're an expert in this subject, but I'm assuming that your own well being isn't always at a hundred percent. And and who do you turn to 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 try and you know, increase that figure if you want to put it like that. Yeah. And what I love about well-being is, you know, it's not uh, we need to have that shift from kind of me to we <laughs> because you can't have well-being without that we at the start of well-being. <laughs> so in that sense, like I see a psych every couple of weeks uh, regardless of what's happening in my life. So I see that as a preventative and a, a treatment as well um, at the same time. So that for me is is always going on. I don't see a psych just when I need help. That's interesting, actually, just picking up on that. Sorry, that's an interesting kind of proactive step, isn't it? That's not sort of, uh, you know, waiting until you're feeling a bit low and then getting help. That's actually actively going out and and doing something to to try and keep your well-being level high. Exactly. And it's just like, you know, when you're in the gym, you're mostly training to get stronger, right? You're not in there for rehab most of the time. So it's kind of the same concept of of training that brain muscle, which is a helpful analogy for some people. You know, we've we've got to train the the mind and the brain. Uh, just as much as we train our bodies and then hopefully get them to to work together a little bit better. So yeah, I think that's that the proactive approaches are really important. And yeah, I think even um, Mattel Ricard, who's known as the world's most happiest man, and apologies, I always do a bit of a bodge of his name, but he would say that his well-being can always be improved as well. Um, you know, you, you do practice gratitude and, and uh, things like altruism and compassion for, for yourself and for others. Uh, there's always, though, that aspect of, of growth. Um, so I would never say probably, I don't know if you can have 100% well-being per se. <laughs> Thinking about it and listening to you now, would you say actually that striving for 100% is actually not, uh, that's probably not conducive to a good, a good well-being, is it? Yeah, probably because then you're probably aiming like to be perfect and then that comes, you know, with your obsessive passion like your Bob Vellerand work. So, you know, having that compassion to be, okay, things aren't perfect and that's okay because at the end of the day, life on a daily basis can be pretty tough and it's always going to throw these curveballs at you. Because can you tell, are there, are there signs that you can pinpoint when you know that your well-being needs a boost, for example? Are there things that actually you, you detect about yourself where you think, hold on a minute, I'm not, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not quite right here. Oh, definitely. I mean, one of my easy ones is tears. Like I'll start crying when I drop my keys and think that the world is going to end. And I'm like, oh, that is one of my signs. <laughs> um, but, but working with my psych, we've, we've identified, well, what's kind of my, my feather triggers from my body um, and my mind? What are my brick signs that I'm getting? And then what's the train sign? <laughs> and so, you know, that train the, the train signals that I get. So that's generally when I'm in mass amounts of pain, I'm having to take drugs, I'm not sleeping well, um, and I'm withdrawing. So I'm coming into my shell and I'm not reaching out for help um, and playing the victim, then that's kind of probably more my train wreck signs. Whereas a, a feather would be, yes, some tears or just have that feeling of, of not being able to cope uh, with the smaller things that are happening in life. And one of my strengths is, is gratitude. I'm, I'm, I, I feel gratitude on a, on a daily basis, multiple, multiple times a day for, for small things to big things. And so I know that when I can't harness that power of gratitude, that's, that's one of my signals as well. And, you know, that's for me personally, and it'll vary for each and every one of us. And I guess that we all have a responsibility to know our own kind of loved ones signals you know in that sense you know because I, I guess there are things that we can do you know and your loved ones friends and family etc can do when they start noticing some of those signals you've been describing there to, to help you out yeah definitely I mean I know some of my mum's signals and so my my tactic is to hey mum do you want a cup of tea <laughs> so that then enables us to to sit and to pause and then creates the space for conversation um, which then enables, you know, the power of, of awareness and reflection and potential, if needed, action steps to be taken. But I think the most powerful thing we can give each other as human beings when we're with one another is, is that gift of attention. So uh, that undivided attention where you're listening to understand and not to put your own opinions forward. So there's that there's a mindfulness component in there. Um, there's a curiosity component in there. There's a compassion and empathy component in there. And so I think that's a, a really important skill in terms of those relationships. And that's a, a two-way street. I just want to ask you about your disability again, Hannah. I'm, I'm not expecting you to speak on behalf of all disabled people because I wouldn't want to do that either. But just in terms of your own experience in life, do you think your disability has had an impact on your well-being? And if so, for good or bad? People with a disability and athletes with a disability, I mean, you have this massive connection between your your physical health and your well-being and because our bodies might not be able to do everything that's considered normal in this able-bodied world that we live in and then therefore we have to have a lot of resilience to be able to just live life on a day-to-day -day basis. And just going back to your own sporting career, obviously you had successes, you had failures, you had good races, uh, bad races. How important is um, your coach in that regard when you know let's say when you've had a bad day on the track or in the pool and just thinking about well-being still here what can a coach actually do at that point to kind of make you feel better a coach is one of the most important people in an athlete's life because you know they're literally dictating what your daily 
life looks like uh, from the training sessions you do to the recovery that you're doing. It's absolutely nuts. So that that relationship is really important. And I think, uh, you know, just like coaches have frustrations with athletes and athletes have frustrations with coaches. But when I reflect on my relationship with Nick and him being my coach for the past, I think it's five years now that we're coming up to I don't know. He seems to have a really good way with words uh, after a, a disappointing race, for instance, or you know, not qualifying for the Tokyo Paralympic Games. We've got plenty more from Hannah McDougall in a moment, but first let's get to know who is behind her for what's ahead. Brought to you by Allianz, a long-standing and now worldwide Paralympic insurance partner of the International Paralympic Committee. We're introducing you to the people behind the Paralympians, the ones that spark their confidence and help them prepare for what's ahead. For Hannah, that's her coach, Nick Owen. I asked him what kind of things he's looking out for with his athletes in terms of their well-being. I think it depends on the athlete and how well you know them um, and how closely you're working with them. Uh, in cycling, you can work quite remotely from your athletes. Like I coach some athletes who live in, live in Europe and I hardly ever see them. Um, so it's a little bit different and a little bit tricky in that circumstance because really the, the contact you have with them is, is a lot less than if they're in Melbourne. Um, so that really, that really requires a, a really good and honest relationship between an athlete and a coach to be able to have, you know, quite, quite personal and quite challenging at times conversations. It's not impossible, but it's very important and it's, it's a real challenge. With someone who's locally based, like Han, Hannah is based in Melbourne and she lives around the corner from me and I see Hannah a couple of times a week. Um, you can kind of tell if you know someone well enough just by seeing them and their their traits and the way that they're talking and moving and, and, and speaking and whether they're withdrawn or or um, whether, they, whether whether their personality changes at all. Uh, so I really, th- I really think it depends on, depends on the athlete and it depends on the situation that you're working with the athlete. The thing with sport, I guess, is that you know, there will be days where you win a race and there'll be days where you're way down the field, you know, and you perform badly. Does, does it follow that uh, an athlete's well-being is, is always much easier to look after when they're, when they're winning, when they're doing well than, than when they're not? The unfortunate thing is you, 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 lose, you lose a lot more races than what you win. Even if you're, even if you're a really successful athlete, um, you're still going to lose a lot more races than what you win. It's just um, the nature of, of, of sport, really. There's, there's very few exceptions to that, unfortunately. But yes, to answer your question, oh, is it? It's different, you know. It's a different challenge. If someone's winning, there's still challenges. You're still trying to get better. I, don't, I think the best athletes never get to a point where they're satisfied with their performance, even if they win. It's a different problem and it's a different stress. But the stress of winning is still a stress. They want to keep winning athletes. They don't want to win one race or one event and then stop. And losses can be mixed because it kind of depends on what your expectations are going into a race. If you've got really high expectations and you have a poor performance, that's that can be really shattering to an athlete. Um, if they're really emotionally invested into a preparation and they've given everything that they can to it and they just don't perform on the day, and that, and that happens, unfortunately, that, that can be really devastating to an athlete and that's – that's tough. That's tough for everyone involved. So Nick, what can you do in that situation then as the coach? Because if I put myself in your position and let's use Hannah as an example, 
if Hannah underperforms in a race as her coach, my temptation might be to show my disappointment and frustration. But at the same time, you know, we've been talking about mental health and well-being. I should also be consoling and supporting her, shouldn't I? And being behind her for what's ahead. So what can you do when one of your athletes doesn't perform as they're expecting or hoping? Yeah, I think initially after straight after a race is not the time to start uh, interrogating a race, really, unless you've got another race coming up in the immediate future. I think that's which we don't with cycling. We've got at least a couple of days between events. Um, And in a race like World Champs or like a big event, um, there's a huge gap between the next event. So you've got time to kind of digest it all. And And I don't think in an emotionally charged time, which is straight after an event, is really the time to do that. It's nice to get some of the athletes' feelings straight after a race. I think that's important just so they can kind of get it off their chest, whether it's good or bad. Uh, uh, in, in terms of a disappointing result, it, you know, there's a time – I think finding out why, why, and it's if it's a lack of effort, I think that's something that you've got to kind of challenge. It really is with really good athletes. It's not, it's not, often, it's not often a problem. Um, if they just don't perform – I mean, sometimes athletes have bad days, you know. It's hard to put it down to anything sometimes. You just scratch your head and look at training and and trends and we take a lot of, whole lot of uh, uh, biological markers. We take heart rate variability and, you know, we take a lot of measures with um, with athletes as well to check that they're f- how their physiology is responding to training. And sometimes you can just get to a race and and, and the result isn't what you expect it to be. And, and you've just, you just got to kind of let it go if that's the case. There's no point really harping on it if, you, if it's just a bad day. And remember, a bad day for an elite athlete is a couple of percent off. It's not, it's not 50% off. It's not like me having a bad day at work, which could be a shocker. A bad day for an elite athlete is you're 2% off your best. You know, if I'm 2% off my best at work or you got, you know, you're 2% off your best day at work, you wouldn't know. You, you just wouldn't notice it. But in a world championship race, that's, that's a minute. That's the difference between winning and fourth. Well, fine margins in sport. That was Nick Owen, Hannah's coach. And, and Hannah, I know you're now involved in helping young athletes along the way with their own well-being. I know you've spoken highly of Australian sprinter Isis Holt, amongst many others. How much joy does that bring you to be the voice behind these young athletes and to be able to pass on your wisdom to the next generation? Yeah, it's pretty special uh, to be able to connect with the next generation um, and the current generation as well uh, when you can harness your your skills and your strengths. Um, and for example, for me, that's, you know, this, this well-being space and then also the mindfulness and the breathwork space um, and to provide those to some, I'm really about simple practical tools that we can use. <laughs> Such as, can you give us an example of a few? So one is to practice gratitude on a day-to-day basis, whether that be in a formal sense. So at the end of the day, writing down three things that went well or in a in a momentary sense. So, you know, when you're walking by that flower to stop and to savor it and to practice gratitude in that moment. So I think gratitude is a, a really massive one. Um, and then when we look at uh, breathing techniques to help with uh, our well-being and our health because there's so many benefits from knowing how to breathe correctly where you know 90% of the world uh, don't breathe correctly and we have 20 to 30,000 
breaths per day to practice that skill. So, you know, lengthening that exhale, doing a, a breath ratio of perhaps three, three counts for your inhale, six counts for your exhale can be a really powerful way to help shift your body into that parasympathetic nervous system, your digest, rest and repair. Uh, so that's one simple, practical, free tool that you can use. And then you've also got, you know, the to help with sleep, for example, the easiest and for free method is just going out and watching the sunrise um, and not having glass or any other obstruction um, between you. And that's going to help with your um, circadian rhythms and all of these hormones and biological processes that happen within the body. And then vice versa is, you know, if you can, getting in a little bit of sunset time as well. And that's going to have a massive impact on sleep. And then therefore sleep helps ridiculous amount of functioning um, and your resilience as well. So they're just a couple of examples. Well, it's been brilliant to talk to you, Hannah. Really interesting. And I'm sure people who've listened to this will go away and take on a couple of your tips and think about their well-being maybe more seriously. So it's been a pleasure speaking to you and thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. Pleasure. In our next episode, our guest will be the silver bullet, Swiss wheelchair racing legend Marcel Hug, who just seems to get better and better and better. But how does he keep his motivation? Find out next time on A Winning Mindset. Winning Mindset.